Chapter 14, Intifada, Peace Process, Intifada The 1987 Intifada began in the Gaza refugee camps in December after four Palestinians working inside Israel were killed when an Israeli tank transporter hit their vehicle. Within days, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in the West Bank, inside the 1948 borders of Israel, and in Gaza, took to the streets in the largest demonstrations in Palestinian history. Hundreds of thousands more marched and protested in the Palestinian camps in Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. Solidarity demonstrations erupted in countries around the world. An underground national unified leadership was formed, made up of representatives of Fatah, PFLP, DFLP, the Palestinian Communist Party, other organizations within the PLO, and independents. The NUL issued flyers calling for various actions, including demonstrations, strikes, and boycotts. Out of the Intifada and the NUL came a new generation of Palestinian leaders, including Marwan Bogati of Fatah and Ahmad Sadat of the PFLP, who today are both among the most popular Palestinian leaders. They are both elected members of the Palestinian Legislative Council, and both were illegally convicted and imprisoned inside Israeli jails. The Israeli military used the most vicious means to attempt to crush the Intifada. Early in the uprising, Israeli troops employed CS, a highly lethal brand of tear gas, firing multiple canisters into homes and other enclosed areas, causing many deaths. The CS gas, produced by federal labs in western Pennsylvania, had an especially deadly effect on the very young and the very old. Israeli Army Chief of Staff Yitzhak Rabin, who would later become Prime Minister, proclaimed a policy of breaking bones of demonstrators, which was taken up by the occupation forces. Video images of Israeli troops holding down and breaking the hands, arms, and legs Palestinian children and youth inflamed world public opinion. Despite savage repression, which included the arrest, systematic torture, and imprisonment of tens of thousands of Palestinians, the Intifada could not be defeated. A situation of dual power existed for nearly four years, pitting the Israeli occupiers against the organized resistance under the leadership of the NUL. Palestinian-American activist Muna Kupti characterized the importance of the Intifada in the January 2005 issue of Socialism and Liberation. Quote, the Palestinian Intifada had few precedents in history. It was an ongoing general strike of an entire people. As a consequence of their heroism, many Palestinians were deprived of employment, education, and access to the essential necessities of life. The image of schoolchildren confronting Israeli tanks with nothing more than stones became emblematic of a people whose very survival and identity was dependent on their capacity to struggle. End quote. The 1987 Intifada transformed the situation in Palestine. It put to rest any and all versions of what was referred to as the Jordanian option. Proposals for Palestinian autonomy of some parts of the West Bank linked to the regime of the U.S. client, 
King Hussein. Seeing the writing on the wall, Hussein renounced Jordanian ambitions to rule over the West Bank in 1988. The breadth, depth, and intensity of the uprising proved to the world that there could be no solution to the conflict without self-determination for the Palestinian people. The prolonged 1987-1991 Intifada forced the U.S. leaders to rethink their position. It became clear that all the killing, bone-breaking, torture, house demolitions, and economic deprivation that the Israelis inflicted had not succeeded in crushing the Palestinians. Relationship of Forces Changes The year 1991 marked a qualitative shift in the world relationship of forces. Early that year, the U.S.-led military coalition delivered a smashing blow to Iraq and the Arab world as a whole in the first Gulf War. Iraq had been the strongest of the Arab countries militarily for years. Then, late in the year, the Soviet Union, which had been a strategic ally of the Palestinian and Arab liberation movements, was overthrown and dissolved. So, although the Palestinians had proven through the determined struggle that they could not be disregarded or wished away, their position in 1991 was seriously weakened by developments over which they had no control. This combination of factors and the understanding that the Arafat leadership was now willing to come into the U.S. orbit made the time ripe for peace negotiations in Washington's view. The negotiating process began in Madrid, Spain, and culminated in the Oslo Accords of 1993. On September 13, 1993, President Clinton forced Israeli Prime Minister Yatsik Rabin to shake Yasser Arafat's hand the much-celebrated White House signing ceremony. Rabin's reluctance was not just personal, but symbolic of the opposition of all Israeli leaders to giving up any Palestinian territory. The Oslo Accords called for an interim agreement. During the interim, the PLO would take over the administration of Jericho and most of Gaza, to be followed by the eight largest cities in the West Bank and small surrounding areas. The areas in which the PLO had both civilian and security responsibility never increased to more than about 12% of the West Bank. Under the terms of Oslo, within five years there were to be final status negotiations on the following issues. 1. The status of Jerusalem. 2. The status of Palestinian refugees. And 3. The status of Israeli settlements in the West Bank and Gaza. A phased turnover of land to full Palestinian control would supposedly take place during that time, but Israel immediately stonewalled, blocking implementation on all main points. The Palestinian left organizations vehemently opposed Oslo, with good reason. So too did Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, which formed in 1987. Hamas an offshoot of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, had in the beginning been allowed by the Israeli authorities to operate its social services quite freely in the West Bank and Gaza. Hamas was not part of the PLO, and Israel originally saw it as a vehicle for drawing forces away from the resistance organizations. 
But as the 1987-1991 Intifada progressed, Hamas transformed into an active resistance organization. Hamas was not negatively impacted by the 1991 developments in the way that the secular leftist organizations were. After Oslo, disillusionment over the Accords set in as it became clear that Israel was tightening its hold on the West Bank, not turning it over as promised. Hamas grew very rapidly in the immediate post-Oslo years. It became the largest organization opposing Oslo and carrying out armed resistance. Rabin was assassinated by a more extreme Zionist in 1995. But by the time the Oslo process collapsed in 2000, Israel was far more entrenched in the West Bank than it had been in 1993. While most of the world, and certainly the Arafat leadership, expected that Oslo would lead to the emergence of a Palestinian state, however limited. Successive Israeli leaders undermined any such possibility. As soon as Oslo was ratified, the Israeli leaders began breaking the agreement. Of particular significance were the Israeli violations of Article 31, Clause 8, which stated in part, quote, The two parties view the West Bank and Gaza Strip as a single territorial unit, the integrity and status of which will be preserved during the interim report. End quote. Israel set out on an accelerated settlement and Jewish-only road-building campaign in the West Bank. Between 1993 and 2001, the number of Israeli settlers in the West Bank, including Jerusalem, increased from about 150,000 to 370,000. Today, the number stands at more than 500,000. In October 1998, Palestinian-American writer Fawaz Turki described the magnitude of Oslo's failure. Quote, the five years have passed and the Palestinians are not a jot closer to independence or even the trappings of independence. They have little control over their land and none over their borders, water resources, trade, customs, population, mobility, and the rest of it. In fact, Israeli authorities have continued to treat the Palestinians like a conquered people, rather than, as one would have assumed after the Oslo Accords were signed at the White House lawn, as peace partner. End quote. When Clinton's last-ditch attempt to reach a final agreement at Camp David in summer 2000 collapsed, U.S. leaders blamed the Palestinians for having rejected Israel's best and most generous offer. In reality, it was a joint U.S.-Israeli proposal. During the course of the talks, U.S. negotiators, led by Clinton's Middle East envoy Dennis Ross, often posed as neutral, when in reality they were delivering Israeli proposals. In the deal, all the details of which were not revealed until years later, the Palestinians would have received Gaza and about 75% of the West Bank with Israel annexing the remainder. The Palestinian West Bank was to be broken up into four chunks of land completely surrounded by Israeli settlements and soldiers. The U.S.-Israeli team demanded that the Palestinians renounce the right of return for refugees. The Palestinian state was to be demilitarized 
with Israel in control of its borders, airspace, and water resources. There was nothing generous about this offer. Al-Aqsa Intifada Breaks Out Seven years of declining living standards, relentless repression, and great frustration led to the 2000 Al-Aqsa Intifada, which began September 28, 2000. The event that triggered the new uprising was a visit by Ariel Sharon to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. It was no ordinary visit. Sharon was surrounded by 1,500 armed police for his provocative intrusion into one of the world's most important Muslim religious sites. Another factor in the new Intifada was the withdrawal of Israeli troops from South Lebanon after 22 years of occupation. It was clear that what ended the occupation of Lebanon was not negotiating, but armed resistance led by Hezbollah and its allies. The new Intifada began with massive street demonstrations and thousands of young people throwing stones at Israeli troops. The Israelis were positioned in their tanks and armored vehicles in the Palestinian cities, towns, and refugee camps that were supposedly under Palestinian Authority control. As this writer witnessed firsthand, the Israeli soldiers fired tear gas, so-called rubber bullets, steel bullets with a hard plastic coating, live ammunition without plastic coating, and tank shells into the Palestinian crowds. Within a few weeks, the Israelis began using air power, F-16s, and attack helicopters. Israel's hugely superior firepower was deployed indiscriminately against Palestinian civilian areas in the West Bank and Gaza. Thousands of Palestinians were killed, thousands more wounded and imprisoned, and immense damage was deliberately inflicted on civilian buildings, businesses, hospitals, homes, schools, churches, and mosques. It was clear to this writer, who participated in a delegation to the West Bank and Gaza a month after the Al-Aqsa Intifada began, that Israeli troops sought to cause maximum damage to the civilian infrastructure. New housing developments that had been constructed recently in impoverished Gaza were damaged or destroyed by Israeli fire. These new buildings had been built with international funding and were meant to help relieve the acute housing problems in Gaza, where 70% of the population are refugees. Having no tanks, air force, or regular army, the Palestinian resistance forces responded with a variety of tactics, including a wave of suicide bombings inside Israel. Hamas carried out the great majority of these operations, but other organizations including the PFLP, the Islamic Jihad, the Popular Resistance Committees, and the DFLP also engaged in armed resistance. Only the Palestinian actions were labeled terrorism by the U.S. corporate media. Between 2001 and 2004, the suicide bombings caused significantly more casualties on the Israeli side than were seen in the 1987-1991 Intifada. Still, the Palestinian death toll between 2000 and 2008 was far higher than the Israeli, 4,907 on the Palestinian side.
1,062 on the Israeli side. The lightly armed PA security forces attempted to defend the cities against Israeli assault, but were soon overwhelmed by the massively superior firepower on the Israeli side. All PA security positions were destroyed, but the resistance did not stop. In March 2002, a number of Arab governments proposed a settlement plan. Israel would withdraw from the West Bank and Gaza, which would then become a Palestinian state. In exchange, all the Arab countries would recognize Israel. The Ariel Sharon-led Israeli government reacted in a predictable fashion by launching a series of new assaults on the Palestinians, leading to the full reoccupation of all the West Bank and Gaza cities and towns. PA President Yasser Arafat's Mokata compound in Ramallah was bombed and bulldozed. He was forced to live in what remained of the compound until his death in 2004. Particularly devastated was the Janine refugee camp in the northern West Bank. After several days of bombing and shelling, Israeli militarized bulldozers supplied by the U.S.-based Caterpillar Corporation, worked day and night for 72 hours to demolish the camp. Dozens of Palestinians died, many laid under piles of rubble for weeks undiscovered. The extraordinary brutality of the Janine massacre was condemned worldwide. But, once again, the United States, this time under the administration of President George W. Bush, protected Israel from suffering any type of international sanction, despite its ongoing and obvious violations of international law. The Israeli military also launched a campaign of targeted assassinations against the leaders and cadres of resistance organizations. Those who were not killed were arrested. Today, more than 9,000 Palestinian activists remain locked away in Israeli prisons. In 2002, the Sharon government began building an apartheid wall inside the West Bank. The wall separates the main Israeli settlement blocks from the Palestinians while effectively annexing large chunks of the West Bank. The wall separated many Palestinian villages from their agricultural land. The International Court of Justice, the UN's highest judicial authority, declared the wall illegal in 2004, opining that it should be torn down. Israel and the United States ignored the ruling, decrying it as unfairly biased. In fact, the second Bush administration made no attempts to disguise its unequivocal support for Israel. The murderous Sharon Israel's Prime Minister from 2001 to 2006 visited the White House more than any other foreign leader. Only in Bush's last year in office was the President of the Palestinian Authority, Mohammad Abbas, invited to Washington, and then only for symbolic talks.